Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 5th of April, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We are delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us north, northern exposure from north of the border. And we're also joined by our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Plus, we have two very interesting guests with us today. Uh, okay, so let's get straight on. And uh, David, the news from Scotland then. Here's uh, Connor Gillers. Gillies tweeting this out. Uh, police evidence tent erected outside the home of former SNP exec Peter Merle after he was arrested amid party finances investigation. And of course, uh, that's not just his house. It's also Nicola Sturgeon's house. So it goes on to say the Glasgow property he shares with his wife, Nicola Sturgeon, is sealed off by detectives. Uh, and the police statement says this. A 58-year-old man was today, Wednesday, 5th of April 2023, being arrested as a suspect in connection with the ongoing investigation into the funding and finances of the Scottish National Party. The man in custody uh, and is, is in custody and is being questioned by Police Scotland detectives. Officers are also carrying out searches at a number of addresses as part of the investigation. A report will be sent to the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service. Uh, the matter is active for the purposes of contempt of court, 1981. Uh, and the public are therefore advised to exercise caution if discussing this on social media uh, as the investigations ongoing were unable to comment further. So in light of that threat from the police, uh, what can you tell us? Well, uh, the underlying uh, complaint was made by uh, supporters of Scottish independence who donated money to an SNP campaign, um, which was raising funds for the next uh, independence referendum campaign, and it raised £600,000. Um, this uh, gentleman felt that the fundraising campaign was very clear and that uh, the money was ring-fenced for, raised for, uh, raised specifically for and ring-fenced for the next independence referendum campaign, which obviously uh, did not happen or has not yet happened. Um, when the accounts of uh, the SNP were published and there was something like £200,000 in the bank, uh, people started to wonder where all the money had gone. And uh, at least one gentleman put in a formal complaint to the police. This was widely mocked on social media and elsewhere by the supporters, by the, shall we say, the uh, intellectual bodyguard uh, of, of the SNP. Uh, all the kind of paid public intellectuals in Scotland who support the SNP um, were ridiculing this complaint. Well, it's now gone to the point where there's been an arrest of the former chief executive of the party, Peter Murrell, white um, husband, sorry, beg your pardon, husband of Nicola Sturgeon. And um, we have, we've gone from um, the, the, the new party leader, Hamza Yusuf, talking about the SNP being a large tent, to a large tent, um, an evidence tent being, being camped outside Nicola Sturgeon's house. Um, the raids are going on in other SNP uh, premises and SNP headquarters. It is astonishing. And I would also point out that not only did Nicola Sturgeon resign only a short while ago, but the Chief, the Chief Constable of Police Scotland also unexpectedly and suddenly resigned um, uh, just before that. So it, it, there's been... An awful lot of changes. We don't know how many of these things have related to the events of today. We obviously don't know 
uh, Peter Molyneux has been arrested. We don't we don't we understand he's not yet been charged with anything. Um, so we'll have to see how the uh, process of um, the administration of justice proceeds. But astonishing events. And just uh, one other thing I would say is um, the comment by Police Scotland there, essentially warning people about what they say in social media, is no idle threat because Craig Murray, who was uh, blogging, reporting on the trial of Alex Salmond, um, I thought in a very intelligent and informative and useful and helpful way, uh, was um, convicted of contempt of court and sent to jail over his blogs uh, the accusation being that he had, in a jigsaw fashion, identified the complainants. But what he'd actually done is he'd revealed that all the all the people who raised complaints against Alex Salmon um, were part of Nicola Sturgeon's inner circle. And I think that piece of information um, was vital, should have been known in the public domain, um, and uh, was was important for the people of Scotland to understand in order to assess what was happening to their political leaders and to their, indeed, police judiciary and pub public prosecuting service. Uh, none of these things saved Craig Murray from having, having to spend time behind bars. So this uh, threat from Police Scotland is no idle threat at all, and it's quite clear that uh, drastic action would be taken against anybody a journalist or otherwise saying the wrong thing uh, about the uh, higher echelons of the SNP and the leadership. Yes. Uh, I'll just add two things, David. Uh, one, of course, I think the jigsaw uh, rule applies here that even if you don't identify a particular person directly, if you uh, share information via social media which links things together in order to point a finger, you can also be culpable and and in deep trouble. So people should reflect on that. Uh, but the other thing that comes into my mind about this whole affair is how sad it is that at the moment we seem to go near the bigger parties. It's not unusual for there to be controversy about money coming in and where that money goes to. My mind goes back to UKIP in the very early days when there was huge controversy over a lot of funding coming into the Ashford Call Centre. Uh, but of course, we've also had the uh, questions asked to the Tory party over large sums of money coming in from essentially Russian oligarchs. So uh, not unusual for there to be controversy. Okay, David, any final comments? This is piling up um, a concern over the nature of governance in Scotland. Um, we've had the Salmon affair, which was never really adequately resolved. Um, and we've had uh, multiple failures at the UK Supreme Court. We've had um, uh, uh, concerns over the, the, the way that they've uh, adopted and absorbed the third sector, the charitable sector, in order to bolster uh, Scottish government policy, uh, how, they've, uh, 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 how they've captured the civil service in order to um, generate, bolster and, and, and propagate SNP policy. There are many, many things surrounding the SNP administration of the devolved government in Scotland that have been of great concern for a lot of time. Um, corrupt Scotland is the shorthand for all of this. Yeah. Not speaking about the current case specifically, but 
an overall view. It's corrupt Scotland is, is a shorthand for all of this. Um, I think something needs to be done about it. I think we need a royal commission into the governance of Scotland. It is that bad. Um, we do need to uh, open the windows and actually let some fresh air in, let some sunlight in and see what's actually been going on. Um, we know a, a lot of decisions are made without proper record keeping. We've found great difficulty getting answers to FOI requests. All of this sort of thing, there's a culture of secrecy and many suspect a culture of corruption as well. We need to know, and this is just one more example of, um, of a culture which is extremely worrying. And uh, I hope a broader overview will be taken of this, of the whole governance of Scotland, and something done so that the people of Scotland and elsewhere in the United Kingdom can actually understand what has been going on. Okay, thank you very much, David. Okay, let's move on then to TikTok and the Information Commissioner's Office. Uh, so they released this pre press release yesterday. Uh, ICO fines TikTok £12.7 million for misusing children's data. Uh, so let's look and see what they said here. UK data protection law says that organisations that use personal data when offering information society services to children under 13 must have consent from their parents or carers. TikTok, TikTok failed to do that, even though it ought to have been aware that under 13s were using its platform. TikTok also failed to carry out adequate checks to identify and remove underage children from its platform. Um, so here is uh, John Edwards, the information commissioner. This is what he had to say. There are laws in place to make sure our children are safe in the digital world as they are in the physical world. TikTok did not abide by those laws. As a consequence, an estimated 1 million under 13s were inappropriately granted access to the platform with TikTok collecting and using their personal data. That means that their data may have been used to track them and profile them, potentially delivering harmful, inappropriate content at their very next scroll. So I'm going to suggest that this is not really about TikTok. This is actually an extremely political decision by the Information Commissioner's Office. Uh, it's political in the sense that, first of all, it reinforces the narrative to justify the ongoing uh, online safety bill, which is uh, at committee stage still in the House of Lords, uh, but also it justifies the anti-China narrative. Uh, I'll explain why I'm saying that in a second. Uh, it was mainly because I wrote to the Information Commissioner uh, yesterday and, I, and said, could you tell me please whether or not the ICO has fined Facebook or Instagram for permitting under 30, 13s to use their platforms? And if not, why not? Now, that's a paraphrase of what I wrote. But this was the response I got from the Information Commissioner's Office. Uh, so since the conclusion of our investigation into TikTok, they said, we published our children's code to help protect children in the digital world. It's a statutory code of practice aimed at online services such as apps, gaming platforms, and web and social media sites that are likely to be accessed by children. Uh, we've seen visible behavior change from companies since the children's code entered into force. Some of the changes we've seen are, uh, from companies include uh, the one example, Google turned off ads for under 18s. Instagram and Epic Games uh, are making improvements to parental controls. And Meta is developing new age assurance systems to improve uh, identification of uh, underage accounts and to improve age appropriateness of content. Now, you'll notice that none of those uh, three items uh, suggest that uh, there are any fewer uh, under, age, under 13 accounts on any of those platforms than there were uh, when the children's code entered into force. We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, as with all of our work, they said, if we believe that people's rights aren't being respected and that this is causing harm or distress, then we'll investigate further. 
Um, so what is the Children's Code? Uh, well, it was it became into effect on the 2nd of September 2021. Uh, and this is what it says. You may have noticed change. Changes to how children's ac children access or, uh, or use certain websites, apps, games, or online products. This is because as of 2nd September 2021, online services need to follow a set of standards when using children's data. These standards are known as the children's code. But there's a problem here because the question is, why choose TikTok? Was it because TikTok was the most egregious offender in this case? Or was it because there's, a, as I say, a political motivation in targeting a Chinese company? Uh, well, let's have a look at this from Ofcom. This was published in July 2022. Uh, and in this report uh, entitled Children's Online User Ages Quantitative Research Study, uh, they say for children aged 8 to 12 who used social media, the proportions with their own prof profile were 79% amongst Snapchat users, 72% for Facebook users, uh, around two-thirds for TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and 43% for YouTube. And so the key point here is, Brian, very interested in your thoughts on this, because uh, it seems clear to me that TikTok was targeted, because TikTok appears right in the middle of the, that. Snapchat and Facebook way out on front with under 13s using their platforms, where their data is being hoovered up and being used for whatever purposes Snapchat and Facebook use them for. Um, and I didn't see Facebook's, well, they, although Meta, according to the Information Commissioner, is doing something about this, it's doing it very, very slowly, and it's not simply identifying uh, accounts belonging to 13-year-olds and younger and removing them from their platforms, even though it should be. Uh, so, you know, I'm interested in what you think. Well, I'm going to say we're seeing more and more regulators being used to enforce political agenda. And later in the news today, we're going to be talking about the MHRA, possibly one of the worst offenders. But um, uh, the idea that, um, that TikTok is being deliberately targeted for a political reason rather than to protect children, I think is, is a perfectly reasonable starting place. And it'll be interesting to see what the uh, information commissioner comes back with on it. Uh, so where does that take us? Well, if we can't protect um, children's safety online, can we protect it in the real world? And I think we're going to suggest not. So Debbie, over to you. This is uh, another incredible article from the Daily Mail. Well, I mean, it, I just don't know how much worse it has to get, really. I mean, with all of this drag agenda, and now we've got children learning the art. Apparently, there's an art of drag. And so the Mail ran this story um, just recently uh, of what's been going on in Northern California. And this is a, this was a two-night workshop, which was organised by the Young Actors Theatre. And it was billed as a safe place for campers to create their own drag personas. So this is, this is the way that we're, we're going. And, and then we've also got drag um, holiday camps, like summer camps coming up, and one in Canada that's coming up with massive great big banner. I mean, you can't miss that, can you? Bright pink and bright purple. And you can see there that it's been supported by the City of Vancouver, the Canada Council for Arts, British Columbia. You can see them all there, but this is a junior drag camp, um, ages seven to 11, and then a teen drag camp. So this is the way we're going. And for anybody that thinks that the UK 
is exempt. We're not because next week I'll feature another company which is called Tart Productions, which is led by um, Ginger Tart, I believe. And she, he, she will be um, starting drag shows and queer camps for kids in the UK starting this year. So that's what we've got to look forward to. And that surely Debbie is grooming. With the, of the course. Man, for the man on the Clapham omnibus, that must be grooming of children. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. I'm, I'm utterly speechless. And, and I see this whole trans, um, trans agenda, drag agenda. I see, you know, we're looking at transhumanism and we're looking at transgender, we're looking at drag acts, we're looking at drag queer camps for children. And what parents in their right mind would send their child to one of those? Really? What times are we living in? Uh, very, very strange times. I wasn't able to read the full article in the Daily Mail, so I don't know whether the Daily Mail is criticising it. But of course, if the Daily Mail is promoting events that are happening in America, then, then actually what they're doing, well, I've used the word, they're promoting rather than warning people what's coming. But to be fair, I need to get my nose into that article and we'll encourage our viewers and listeners to look at that Daily Mail article. Now, on this subject, I'd like to say a very big thank you to a long-term viewer of the UK column who's based down in Cornwall. And uh, the individual, I can say it was a lady, uh, highlighted this document to me a few days ago. It's by Policy Exchange, Asleep at the Wheel, an Examination of Gender and Safeguarding in Schools. Um, by a lady called Lottie Moore, with a foreword by Rosie Duffield, MP. Now, I have spent a bit of time on this document. Uh, this is the author's details, a research fellow at Policy Exchange, previously worked as policy manager at Public Policy Projects, as well as holding research positions at SOAS and University of London. She's a master's degree in society and belief from Oxford University. That's a tremendous um, degree and a bachelor's in political theology from Bristol. So um, what is this about? Well, it's about what children are being taught in schools. And many people have taken it in a positive way in that they believe that there's a real attempt by the author and the MP, Rosie Duffield, to alert the public as to what's happening. Um, I'm not so convinced because I think it's more subtle. However, the document does do... Um, some good in, in highlighting things that I think our audience need to be aware of. Now, I've just pulled this out from the middle, but they're talking about Stonewall. Um, they, uh, this uh, particular um, section starts by 2015. Stonewall had been endorsed by thousands of schools in UK and had a close working relationship with many government departments. Um, having been vetted and cleared under a very different aim, there was little to stop their new agenda being adopted in a vast network of schools, academy, trusts and councils, uh, despite having undergone a fundamental change of strategy. So on one hand, the document is sort of just spelling it out quite casually that Stonewall has been doing all this work, but it does raise some questions that there's been a strategy. If I blow this uh, section up, we can see a bit more about this. The conflation of their LGBT mission with their new mission for transgender rights enabled Stonewall to retain their influence. In 2015, 
Um, the Department for, for Education and the GEO announced a joint two million for eight organizations with the aim of eradicating HBT bullying. Uh, I think I'll define that in a minute. We'll come on uh, to that, hopefully. Stonewall received the largest share of the fund, nearly 500,000. So we're just putting here uh, their new mission. Well, who are they? Who are these people that have been allowed to come into schools to tell children what they think our children should know? This is the meat of the, pro of the problem. But let's bring in this graph uh, also from the document. It says 52% of schools stated that they'd used a provider, charity or commercial organisation to provide lessons or resources on gender identity. So what sort of things does the document highlight coming into the school? Well, here in Section 7, how are schools dealing with this issue? Terms to avoid, transgendered biologically male, female, these terms oversimplify a complex subject. Now, if you really think about what's going on here, there's some very dangerous stuff being put in front of children. Sexual and gender identities and a whole list of things. Um, children should be able, according to, to the people who produce this table, um, children should be able to define at least five gender identities. So this uh, is, in my view, this is uh, programming of children to take them in a particular direction. And this document is highlighting how it's being done. Here's the gender-bred person, uh, gender identity, gender expression. And uh, I'll leave people to freeze the screen and have a look at it. But of course, uh, we can be sure that children are not being told that uh, life is as simple as men and women in a happy re relationship to produce more children. So um, here's uh, the uh, cover for that document again. Now, the sharp-eyed uh, UK column viewer uh, noticed that uh, there was this particular reference in the document itself. And this is coming on to um, transgender guidance, which is being used in Cornwall. And uh, if we go to that actual document itself, here it is, Schools Transgender Guidance. Uh, the editor's name's there, Steve Cannon from the Intercom Trust and Devon and Cornwall Police. And I found this uh, very, very interesting because you say, well, uh, we've got a charity. Um, what restrictions have we got on that charity? And the police deciding what's going to be taught in schools. But if you do notice at the bottom, we've also got Cornwall County Council logo, or Cornwall Council as it's known now on the right. Um, but it appears that the editors do not include Cornwall Council um, themselves. If we look at the introduction, the purpose of this guidance is to deeper embed good practice in the field of transgender work in schools and colleges and minimise distress and disruption to pupils, students and colleges. Um, but in fact, if you look at how this is being created, uh, it is an agenda. It's not good guidance. This is a proactive agenda to push um, trans, the trans agenda. Uh, here are the signatories, and we've got Trevor Doughty, Director of Children's Schools and Families in Cornwall Council. Uh, we've got the Intercom Trust, which we can highlight for you here, Dr. Michael Halls. And we've got Assistance Chief Constable Sharon Taylor from Devon and Cornwall Police. I find this a very sinister um, range of people 
who are able to get into schools and in front of our children without parents really being aware of what's happening. But if we look at the Intercom Trust um, and encourage people to go and look at their website, uh, together we are stronger. Uh, this is effectively a lobbying organisation. It's a community-led charity that aims to build a southwest region where people are treated with respect, celebrated, and where vibrant LGBT plus communities live with real equality. So this is not a balanced agenda. This is a very biased agenda in favour of the LGBT communities. But of course, this isn't really declared in the document, which is talking about balance in putting things across. If we look at some of the people involved, this is uh, the chair, uh, pronouns he, him, his. And interestingly, if you look through his CV, he's talking about all sorts of roles with the Gay Police Association, Cornwall Race Equality Council, Cornwall Equality and Diversity, LGBTQ Youth Cornwall. Uh, so this man heavily involved in what would appear to be positive steps to put across this particular agenda, but the public largely, parents largely aware. And if we introduce another gentleman here, Adam, pronouns they, them, theirs. Uh, but we've got a psychoanalytic psychotherapist in private practice, particularly interested in queerness and the alienating structure of a normative society. My question would be, is that gentleman's uh, particular personal and professional interests, are those the interests that are actually being put in front of children uh, in order to get children to engage in those same interests. Uh, Debbie, I'm watching your face as I'm speaking. Um, would you like to just comment on that one briefly? I mean, where to start? I mean, the first thing I'll say is that the first name that pops up at me straight away was Trevor Doughty. Um, I've got personal experience of Trevor Doughty, and I know of children in Cornwall that have been physically and mentally abused under the care or the supervision on Trevor Doughty's watch. He was shipped in from another area and he was head of children's services for quite a long time. So the minute I saw that name, Brian, alarm bells were ringing in my head, like big alarm bells. And it's very concerning for everyone, specifically here in Cornwall, because this is happening right now. And do, do parents know what's happening to their children when they leave them at the school gate? Because once they're in school, you, you've got no control or even knowledge half the time of what your children are being taught. So, yeah, quite a lot to say on that. But Trevor Doughty, red alarm, red alarm, big red flags. OK, thank you very much for that. Um, OK, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there, and that would be very much appreciated. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share material on the various platforms, including ukcolumn.org and uh, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, a further reminder that uh, on Sunday, the 23rd of April, uh, the Alternative View team are running a virtual event, which we're helping them uh, stream. And that is uh, about smart cities and the surveillance agenda. Uh, Pippa King, John Kitson, Mark Anderson, David Dubine speaking at that. Uh, very well worth uh, attending. And a lot of work by the AV team, Ian Crane's original team, in order to get AV up and uh, producing the live events. And of course, the first day event in October later this year. Uh, and a reminder that uh, the no to 
uh, ultra-low emission zones, uh, no to ULES event taking place in Trafalgar Square on September the, or sorry, on Saturday the 15th of April. Uh, that starts at 12 p.m. Uh, Trafalgar Square, get along to that if you possibly can. Okay, and uh, Debbie, I think you've got a little uh, advert for your blog here. Oh, just a quick advert. Yes, um, thank you, Brian, for my blog. Um, yes, we're we're into the age of prosthetics, everyone. So if you want to know or you want to know how to get your third thumb, no, I'm really not joking, uh, do have a look at my blog because that's uh, coming up. And um, the cost to die, it's very, very expensive to die these days. So if you want to know that, that's in my blog. And also tomorrow we'll be screening uh, an interview that I did with Jenna Platt, the amazing nurse that walks and talks from Stoke. And it was a meeting of minds. It was her nursing and my nursing back in my day. And it, it was an amazing interview. And I think actually between us, we can probably put everything to rights. So please watch out for that interview tomorrow at one o'clock. Tomorrow at one o'clock, ukcolumn.org slash live. Um, and uh, well, Brian, another event. Well, this was sent in to us very timely. Um, it's a uh, no to 15 minute cities. Debbie Hicks, Piers Corbyn and Jonathan Tilt. Jonathan uh, recently interviewed from the Vote Freedom Project. Uh, so Saturday, the 29th of April at 12 p.m., uh, people gathering New Street, Huddersfield, obviously to um, make their views felt about 15 minute cities. So very encouraged by this. And, and the person who sent this to me said, Huddersfield is not a place that gets a lot of mentions. So we're going to give Huddersfield a mention today and say well done for the team there for standing up. Now, um, Debbie, it's uh, over to you. And uh, uh, we've got a guest today, which you would you like to introduce our guest? Indeed. Um, we have Cheryl Granger with us today, and I'm sure everybody will remember Cheryl um, from the MHRA board meeting. Is that where we're going? Yes? No? We're not? Well, Brian? <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, we were going to introduce uh, Sandy, first of all, oh, to sorry. obviously you carry on. comment on the 15-minute cities. So I know <laughs> I know you have a lot of information in your head. No, no problem there. Sandy, welcome to UK Column. And we really wanted to say to you, uh, well done for all your good work in Glastonbury um, in, uh, and talking to the Glastonbury Town Council about what's coming. Um, so welcome to UK, Colm. Tell us uh, what you've been up to and how you think things are going at the moment. Well, um, it's interesting. I mean, that that was all a big... Uh, I had no idea I was being filmed. I thought I was only going to speak for fifth, uh, three minutes. Someone else had spoken about the 15-minute cities, my friend Leela, who'd done an amazing job. And uh, I thought, well, what do I talk about? So I, I just went for it because I've had a, a long-standing kind of battle with the with the Glastonbury Greens for over 10 years. And so I kind of gave it to them and they just, they just actually just listened, which was interesting. Um, and I gave some documents out, um, and I had no idea that it would it would gain so much traction. Of all the stuff that I've been doing over the last fifteen years, those fifteen minutes did more <laughs> than anything else I've ever done, which was extraordinary. So since then, there's been a resounding silence from the council. They promised us a meeting, um, and they they said they wanted to get a, a citizens' assembly together, which is not the best way. That's all Delphi technique, as you know. Um, so I I I happened to collar the the uh, the mayor in the pub the other evening, and it was quite shocking because I collared him and I said, "Look, you haven't answered any of our emails." Incidentally, they went unitary on on uh, April the first. So no, uh, the, the, the you know the 
that he's not the mayor anymore. Uh, we've now got the deputy mayor who is actually an XR. She's now the mayor. Um, and uh, nobody's answered any of the emails that any of us have sent. So I collared him in the pub and I said, you haven't answered any of your emails. And he said, no, 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 no. I, I, I haven't looked at my emails because I, I'm, I'm in a new relationship and I'm all loved up. And I said, look, that, never mind about that. This is important. You know, we're at war here. Um, and he said, he said, well, actually, I'm, I, I don't understand. He said, there's, I don't understand all this thing about 15 minute cities because they haven't even roll it, rolled it out. And I looked at him blankly and I said, well, hang on a minute. What about they're trialing it in, 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 uh, in Oxford, Cambridge, Canterbury, other places? It's caused devastation. And, um, you know, it's, in, it's really good that we know about this and we talk about this. And uh, he, he just looked blankly. He said, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was being trialed. And I said, well, people have died in, in ambulances trying to get through to hospitals. People's, you know, livelihoods have been devastated. Um, and he, he just didn't have a clue and basically then had a go at me saying that I had created him to receive hate mail <laughs> uh, in his inbox because I've divided the town, apparently. I've made a, a, you know, and I said, no, people have just woken up. I had no idea 200 people would turn up at the council chamber because people are worried about this. And he he just batted it off saying I was creating uh, fear. And I just said, this is rubbish. You know, I'm people are just waking up and you need to play catch up. All of you need to play catch up. Uh, anyway, the, the result of it is that I've got involved with a really amazing uh, set of a, a gra grassroots organization called UKCitizen.org, and we're creating packs, uh, legal packs, everything to challenge net zero in every town council in this country. Um, and so uh, those packs should be ready by tomorrow. I've got to work a bit more on it today. We've got this wonderful uh, lawyer called um, Jane Lord. She's in California, but she lives in, in Yorkshire. She's created helping create the legal side of things. We're going into the whole lie that we've been told on climate change. And we're going to present these packs to every town council in the UK. Uh, whether, you know, I know that democracy is dead, but with if people get behind this, we, we and really since since we've advertised this, it's gone viral. And and there's people popping up all over the country saying, we want to get involved. We want to address our town councils. And that can be only a good thing. We need numbers. Numbers will, will win this. So uh, that's, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of the way down. Sandy, thank, thank you very much for that. Uh, can I just ask any, any interest from local media as to what's been going on? Has anybody come to speak to you or... <laughs> So, no, not at all. Um, uh, you know, oh, the the planters um, were something that that came up in the town council meeting, uh, because the the mayor and and the council approved these massive planters last year that appeared in the town. Um, and uh, every we all knew what they were for, you know, because we're clued up. We thought these these are barriers to, to you know, stop the roads, to, to block the roads. And of course, we, we did bring it up in that council meeting. And and the, the mayor was so funny. He said, I had no idea. It was a big shock to me when they turned up. They were too big. And, and we said, but you saw the drawings. You paid for them. You must have known how big they were. We actually decided that we weren't having them in the high street, that they had to be put in the car park. And they are still there. And we've asked for them to be removed. They haven't been removed yet. But we said they're ugly. They're an eyesore. They're massive and uh, we don't really want them. And they paid a lot of money to have them made. Uh, you know, the councils are making these decisions. They, 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 um, they declared a climate emergency without recourse to us. All their net zero policies 
are no, no recourse to the people. We need to challenge this. All of us need to challenge this. And we need that in numbers. We need people to turn up at town halls and just say, we didn't agree to this. We have evidence to prove that it's 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 actually not it's 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 not uh, it, it's going to destroy um, businesses and everything around us. So this is really what our mission is at the moment. Yeah. Okay, and we know we know there is an effect. Um, Thetford is another place we've just mentioned Huddersfield. So it is extremely interesting that the the public does appear to be engaging with this particular subject, 15-minute cities, in a way that we haven't seen them engage with what we might think are other very important subjects. So this, this has got to be good, and it, and it must be good that people are able to get the facts as to what's happening before they, they go and speak to their local councils. Do, do you, would you like to suggest anything to the UK Column audience? Um, things they could do or things you'd recommend they do or don't do? Do, do go on to ukcitizen.org, join up, um, form a group in your, you know, because it's it's really, it's, it's, it's a whole nationwide. There's different groups all joining ukcitizen.org. These are literally, it is a proper grassroots organisation. It's people with ordinary jobs who are concerned about their cities, who don't like what's happened in all this trial in, in Canterbury and uh, and Oxford and can see through the, the, the nonsense. So it's, yes, those, those are unbelievable. You know, uh, th these are fake trees, apparently, aren't they? <laughs> these, yeah, well, these yeah. the, the viewers can't see it yet. Well, well just, just before we move right. on to that, I just wanted to ask you one more thing, Sandy, just, just for people that don't know, because I'm sure quite a few people don't know. Yeah. You said at the beginning of that, that that Glastonbury had turned into a unitary authority on the 1st of April. Yeah. Can you just let yeah. people know what that means? Well, it's it's really it's all to do with this kind of um, the, the, it's regionalisation. So a lot of the town councils eventually will close. I mean, this is how it's going to be, and they've made they've split up the UK into bigger regions, um, and it's it's called they're calling it unitary. It's actually a, a way of keeping the people further away from the decision making, yeah. and and this is this is what they're trying to do. I mean, it's it's happened all over America, and it. It really is to try and shut us down and free speech and to move us away further from the decision making. And they've also got the, the, it's all tied up with the um, the, the, the um, covenant of smart city mayors, you know, because really what they really want us all to do is to be in 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 um, what kind of sort of I suppose you call it urban er, er, environments. They want us out of the countryside and they'll figure out ways of doing that. Zoonotic diseases, whatever we've got things silly things coming along the pipeline that we know about and um and so really they're trying to move people out of rural areas into urbanized areas where there will be under the smart city mayors who have will have they it will be devolving into more power for the smart city or what they call the um uh the the metro mayors um and 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 also they've they, they've got another lot which are um uh, directly, uh, directly elected mayors, and I think that's where a lot of the mayors who are in town councils now, if they're going to be career politicians and they're into this whole green movement, they will be joining all of that because it's all about it's all about um, the green policies that they they're trying to bring in to uh, to really control us all. Yeah. 
Um, Thank you. Sandy, and you're going to be joining us in extra time so we can have some more discussion on this. And uh, well, let's go back to uh, Debbie because, well, at least they're getting real trees uh, proposed there in <laughs> Glastonbury. But what, what, what are you seeing coming in? Oh, well, I mean, it doesn't get any more unbelievable to, than this, really. So, I mean, Sandy, I'm really sorry, but your planters, they've got to be better than what's coming, which is liquid trees. Um, I mean, I, do you know what? All I'm going to say is you can see the picture on screen. Um, Shall we run VT? There's a very short video clip which might show people no, what Debbie, these liquid trees are. Do you have it? Well, unfortunately, we don't. We don't. But we, we will oh, cover okay. it another time. Yeah. Okay, well, um, just to let you know, then, this is microalgae. It's all to do with oxygen production. And these are big plastic tanks. Um, started off in Serbia, apparently uh, for clean air, because the air pollution so bad, we've got to have these liquid trees. So I, I don't know what to say. No. <laughs> I don't know how much weirder it can get, to be honest. Yeah, indeed. Okay, and the next part is that you've been having a look at um, Natural England. Well, who's heard of Natural England? You know, I thought I had heard of them because it's one of those names, you know, like the National Trust. You kind of think you know about it. But I didn't actually know that this department existed. And let me just tell you a few very quick facts about the Natural England. They've got a budget of 198 million. They're 90% controlled by DEFRA and funded by DEFRA. They're, the exec, they're, they're branded as the executive non-departmental non public body sponsored DEFRA. They've got 2,000 staff and their HQ is in York. Marion Spain is the CEO. Now, she's got environmental agency uh, background and Imperial College. That reminds me of Neil Ferguson and many others. And also um, the other chap that's in charge is Tony Jr. Child mm. men painter are friends of the earth. Now, yeah, I'm afraid we've we've Looks lost. Like we've got some problems with your sound, Debbie. Yeah, we've lost Debbie for the moment. So, so let's. Uh, oh, well, that's unfortunate. Uh, well, uh, we, we we can we can just go through this uh, segment here. Just two seconds. We're having an interesting news today. Um, so, Debbie, talk, talking about. Um, uh, what's happening with Natural England, but The Guardian here talking about what's happening on Dartmoor. You've mentioned this, uh, Mike, a few days ago, Tory MPs and farmers in a clash with Natural England over Dartmoor sheep. And this seems to be an initiative to actually strip out what is incredibly historic um, animal husbandry on Dartmoor, the Dartmoor ponies and sheep, and a lot of uh, worry amongst uh, local farmers. I've got another report here from Cornwall Live on this. Uh, this is um, Moore's plan leaves Cornwall farm families fearing for their livelihoods. So uh, there's a lot to be, a lot to discuss here. But of course, we need to ask where has this huge organisation come from, and what is its real agenda? Have we got you back, Debbie? You have. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm wondering if I, I live in Syria. The internet just went down completely. So there was no reception. So I apologise. So no, what I was going to point out really was Natural England. Um, it seems that they're seizing farmland. You know, many farmers, in especially in Cornwall and Devon, are saying that Natural England are saying, we're going to seize your farmland. You can't uh, any longer 
farm it for agricultural purposes because we want to use it for rewilding. So this is just another thing that's coming in that's possibly Sandy's talking about to get us all out of rural areas and to, to get us into cities. Uh, well, I just, but I'd never so, heard of Natural England before, but they're a very, very big organisation. One to keep an eye on, I think. Okay, I was just going to add that many years ago, the government brought in triple uh, SI areas of special scientific interest and good farming land on farms and estates was uh, designated triple SI overnight and uh, farmers were not allowed to use that land. The government promised uh, uh, monetary compensation but in many cases that compensation was never paid and the farms or the working estates went out of business and I, I can see the same heavy-handed tactics coming up with this one. And they're using triple SI again to, to do that in this yes. case so so at least as far as the Dartmoor uh, issue is concerned. Yep. Okay Debbie let's move on to the MHRA then. Debbie? Right. Well, we well, we we well, seem no. to have we, we seem to have lost Debbie completely again. So, uh, well, I think we should we should we should bring in Cheryl, our guest, and we're going to say to Cheryl, help us out with this segment because um, Debbie's uh, produced a lot of material here, but ultimately we want to be able to get your comment on what we're seeing. So, welcome to UK Column. We're having an interesting news today. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, basically, uh, Debbie found a um, video on YouTube, which was uh, Dame June Rain um, speaking at a, a Welsh um, assembly of um, the yellow card department there. And uh, it came out with some quite <laughs> surprising comments. <laughs> oh. um, so Cheryl, if we if we play those two, we've got two video clips. We've got one which is a, a group of very short clips put together, and then we've got a slightly longer one. If we play those two clips, and then we'll bring you back on, and we can we can get you to tell us what you think is important with those video clips, and then we can work our way through some of the slides. So let's let's have a look at the first of the video clips. We started really with an ambition to be flexible, a regulator, to use new technologies like the Yellow Card app. This is a complicated slide, but it depicts four tracks of safety monitoring from the yellow cards, the spontaneous data on the left, where we were using artificial intelligence for the first time. Having modelled about 100,000 reports, we received about half a million in a reasonably short space of time. So artificial intelligence there helping us. Setting up a cohort, the vaccine monitor, where people volunteered to help. 2,000 pregnant women volunteering to share their data, giving us a denominator. And then investing in rapid cycle analysis alongside collaboration with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, a tool first piloted in CDC in America, but enabling us to use clinical data rapidly, repeatedly, to answer questions such as Guillain-Barre and uh, Bell's palsy. And of course, all of this accompanied by specific epidemiological studies. Everyone knew that there would be issues to test that we were expecting, like Bell's palsy, but we needed to be as ready as we could to provide a definitive answer. 
And I would like to mention a particular signal, reports of thrombosis with low platelets, thrombocytopenia, which really challenged all our capabilities. So quickly identified as a concern, unusual clots in the brain, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, and the health professionals involved were quickly able to look at as many as 300 cases gathered quickly and again show that propensity for the cerebrovenal sinus uh, uh, site to be where the thrombosis occurred. And to look at how these should be managed to minimise the risk. Anyone developing a headache to seek advice if this lasted longer than four days. But we can go further, and we are going further, to research the mechanism of vaccine-induced thrombosis with thrombocytopenia. Ideas around the PF4 actually reacting with the viral vector to produce immune complexes and to understand why this might result in these blood clots. Very difficult to treat, have to be anticipated early and active uh, decisions made about management. Why doesn't it happen more? Because it's really extremely rare, around 15 per million. So this is where science that delves into perhaps a genetic predisposition will unlock the, the answers, because viral vector vaccines are going to be a future of uh, uh, health um, interventions in the future. We knew from our yellow cards that was an age distribution. More common, the younger you got. And therefore, how could we convey benefit risk, the balance that matters, for different age groups, and also to take into account how prevalent the disease was, how likely you were to need to go to ITU with an infection. And so this was the rather elegant model that helped you to see that the younger you got, that risk-benefit balance was going to be much closer, much narrower. And when the disease actually receded, we were able to raise the age limit under which you would be offered an alternative vaccine. So, Debbie, I think we've got you back. You discovered that uh, video of um, June Rain speaking. It had only got a few views, I think four or five views, but you quickly realised the significance. Uh, uh, we know that uh, some of our audience have, have got what was actually said in that because she's casually admitting they knew there was going to be problems. No, we've still got no sound for you, Debbie. Let's bring Cheryl in. Cheryl, uh, over to you. It is incredible, this, uh, this uh, statement by June Rain. Yeah, I mean, she asked the question, what were the learnings from the pandemic for safety monitoring? And she said they learned flexibility. And I just said the answer to that question was they actually failed. Um, the yellow card um, system, um, in their eyes, was kind of overwhelming uh, because instead of a modelled 100,000, they received 500,000. Um, but the overall look at the yellow card um, uh, reports showed that they got more reports um, from these vaccines um, than the total on all conventional vaccines over a period of 50 years. That's got to be a signal in itself. The fact that 59 um, people who've died, unfortunately, have had their um, death certificate stating that it was a, a vaccine death and that normally in the past vaccines have been pulled when there's been less than 50 deaths. So these signals kept coming through and they weren't doing anything 
um, about informing the public um, or considering what to do about the vaccines. Um, the yellow card monitor, um, one of the things she mentioned was that um, this is um, setting up before people vaccinated to follow them up. Um, there were actually 2,000 pregnant women uh, that were monitored, but we've never seen the results of that. They've never said what happened to those uh, pregnancies. Um, is it that we haven't seen it because it's the same as what the Pfizer data was actually telling us? Um, but the monitor was dropped after about seven months, and uh, that was about 15 months ago. And then this um, information on clinical data and the thrombocytopenia that she mentioned, if you go through to their ecological analysis and look at their database, there are two clinical trials on there. There's hardly any information. Um, so it doesn't say much from the, um, for the MHRA's commitment to use population-level data to detect um, a potential safety signal. Um, and then they men she mentions uh, about the epidemiological analysis, and she talks about this proportional um, reporting ratio, which is used to compare uh, new and different and unexpected side effects um, with um, the vaccine's um, uh, that are already in situ and what kind of side effects you get from them. Um, and the CDC actually used this uh, ratio and they uh, wouldn't publish the results that they got from it. And they were forced to, when the Freedom of Information was sent in from the Epoch Times, um, Professor Fenton will tell you that there were so many red flags for the COVID vaccines from this report um, that based on the CDC analysis, um, they should consider halting uh, the rollout of the vaccines. So the information that they were looking at um, seemed to be producing um, results that they either hid from us or they didn't act on. Uh, and uh, well, I'm I'm still short of words because I am so amazed at, at what that lady has said. But the bit that drilled into my head was she was she was talking about problems with Bell's palsy. She was talking about problems with clotting. And, and saying, well, this, this was going to be a problem, but, but the only way we could deal with it was by, an, I think she used a term like sort of active intervention, but they didn't take any interventions. They didn't do anything. They just allowed the programme to run. And um, as we'll see on screen in a minute, they modelled originally for the yellow card on data for 100,000, and then they received over 500,000. So... They knew there was going to be trouble. People were going to be harmed and damaged. They allowed the agenda to continue running. And then they calmly described the results as if real people haven't been, been harmed. I mean, were you, were you shocked when you saw this? I, I know you've seen it, and I believe Professor Fenton's also seen, seen this talk. Were you shocked by it? Um. I suppose I've heard her say the same sort of things before through Alison Kay when she answered my question <laughs> at the MHRA board meeting. Um, they were spouting the same sort of information, um, but they are basically um, convinced that their benefit-risk um, ratio is positive and that they um, basically have um, everything under control. Um, when they're taking off 300 cases of thrombocytopenia that she, she mentioned, um, this is to analyse um, the um, patients in terms of their genetics. Yeah. 
So we, we've got um, quite a detailed um, image here of the yellow card system and some uh, points have been highlighted in red. So top left, we've got what I've just mentioned, uh, yellow cards modelled on, on uh, data 100,000, received 500,000. Then they were boasting they were going to use AI to look at the signals. But in the end, we know that they were using human assessors and they were very short of those people, even though there'd been a massive budget for AI, which you've been able to comment on originally, Mike. And... Um, did they actually see any signals that they thought should should stop what they were doing? So is that a reasonable summary of that left-hand column? Yeah, I mean, there were about a third um, their staff down during this period, um, which they've gone through at board meetings. And when they've been replacing people, they've been inexperienced people. Um, and we have FOIs um, to say that they don't follow up on yellow card reports. Um, so there's a lot of things that they're supposed to be doing that they seem to profess that they're doing that they're not actually doing. Yes. So if we, if we can bring that table back up on screen, let's, let's just mention the second column there, because this is where the pregnant women get mentioned. Um, apparently an active surveillance of a specifically identified cohort of 2,000 pregnant women, and they shared their data, giving a denominator. And the question, yeah. which is quite rightly here, is where is this data? Has anybody ever seen the data on the pregnant women? I think you're suggesting that you haven't. No, and it's, I mean, it's a bit like the V-safe data in the States, which um, they had to um, chase the CDC to get released, which they've now got released. And that is a, a, a denominator of 10 million. And that shows that the, the day after a vaccination, 25% of people were incapacitated and 7 to 8% ended up in the ER. So what sort of information did this monitor show on these pregnant women? Right. Um, I'm sorry. Sorry. Let's, let's, do, um, let's finish this. We've got um, column three. If, Stephanie, if we can pop that one back again. So rapid cycle analysis using clinical data rapidly repeatedly to ask questions, e.g. Guillain-Barre syndrome and Bell, there's the Bell's palsy. Um, well, UK column knows from very early on there were significant problems with the Guillain-Barre syndrome because yeah. Nicola uh, told us the tragic story of the damage her husband had suffered. And as a result of putting that testimony out, we were banned from YouTube. So somebody was very keen to keep that out of the public eye. Um, but we now know, because June Rain is saying it herself, well, they really expected to see uh, these adverse reactions. And then the final comment, uh, final column here, uh, if we go down through it, uh, the statistics that come out is that one death has occurred every 64,197 doses and one significant adverse effect every 426 doses. This should have stopped the program, surely. Well, that, I mean, that is um, um, my data that I used in um, the board meeting, um, but they don't seem to come out with those sorts of, of figures. They don't seem to have any concern on it at all. Um, the, um, you know, one serious adverse reaction in 426 doses is, is quite a, a, a worrying um, piece of statistic that should have stopped the vaccinations. Indeed, indeed. 
I'm assuming we still haven't got Debbie. Uh, we'll try one more go. If not, I'll do my best to work through the slides. Debbie, can you hear me? I don't think so. No. No, okay. Um, right, well, let's, let's watch the second video clip. Indeed, let's watch the second video and then I'll, I'll work through the slides that we've got. Okay. A groundbreaking piece of work, nearly 20 years ago now, estimated the number of proportion of hospital admissions due to adverse drug reactions. And it was an astonishing 6 to 7%, much in line with other international work. Responsible for deaths in a small percentage, 0.15, but importantly, around two-thirds were classified as avoidable. A further piece of work looked at the kind of data when a medicine comes off the market, and clearly, spontaneous data, those yellow card reports, are still the mainstay, the evidence base that we need to use, and therefore all the efforts that the Yellow Card Centre Wales makes are really extremely important. Here again, I pay tribute to the work of the Yellow Card Centre, making sure that good data were always available to advise on drug-drug interactions, so that good advice could be given to those contemplating using Paxlovid, which has been the most commonly used antiviral. And to date, we've had a very small number of suspected adverse reactions. When I looked, it was two out of a 1,000 reports on Paxlovid might have grown since then. So really important to see you can make medicine safer by anticipating these risks. And you can see quite a lot of numbers here, but I think one of the messages is in data linkage, we will get even more power from having 60 million patient lives in our data set. And I know that Wales contributes a lot of data to CPRD. It would be fantastic if we could have linkages with data sets here in Wales. We've talked about transparency already today and the importance of public confidence. And here our chair, Munir Permahamid, going out there to communicate the risks and how the decisions are made. It has a downside, though, with demonstrations outside our offices. This particular occasion, you can see, was quite a, an assertive demonstration. And I think it was the four Burley Met officers that came off worse uh, while we were hiding under our desks. So transparency does have a downside, but thankfully there are ways to anticipate and take appropriate actions. I think I would argue that it was the lack of transparency that uh, caused the demonstrations in many ways, uh, Cheryl. But uh, uh, it was interesting, she said 60 million in their data set. So she was very pleased about that. But of course, that's relying on, on people being guinea pigs on behalf of the MHRA. Yeah, they actually say they've got 60 million there already. And uh, they've got 3 billion consultations recorded. Um, but they're aiming for 60 million, which is all of us, isn't it? Um, we're going to be recorded from birth onwards. Um, so it's <laughs> that's quite a, a frightening prospect to me. I signed the GP um, information to say I didn't want my information passed on to anybody um, a few years back, which I know a lot of people have signed, but I don't think that's actually taken into account anymore. Um, that has obviously not got any significance. Um but um, I thought it was very interesting uh, when she started saying about the uh, downside of being open, of being transparent, was that we had demonstrations. Um, I actually went on the um, protests 
It's the first time in all my years I've ever been on a protest, but I went on quite a few. And they were very friendly, very well-behaved uh, set of people who were just speaking their views. Um, they were always on a Saturday, and that's what I've asked there. She was hiding under a desk on a Saturday, so she was a good girl. She was working the weekend. Um, but um, I just found that it was peculiar that she linked it back to the introduction by Burma Hubbard um, at Downing Street on the 2nd of December 2020. He then told us that the vaccines were 95% effective, they uh, have safety um that is similar to the other vaccines. Mostly side effects are mild. Um, surveillance will be done by the yellow card. He talked about monitoring programmes and invited people to join it. Um, and he basically said these vaccines will save lives in a once in a century pandemic. So that yes. was the transparency we got from him that then she connected to the protest. Um, Cheryl, just to highlight it for the audience, um, Sir Munir Permahamid, um, is the uh, chair of the Commission on Human Medicines. And that organisation actually holds ultimate responsibility for patient safety. So June Rain, uh, deferring to him, of course, the MHRA has also got responsibility, but they uh, try and slope shoulder. Uh, it's uh, Munir Pir Mohammed who's going to be the man looking after safety, but he has never done so. And in emails, which I know Debbie Evans has sent, sent in his direction, uh, he's always effectively given a stonewall answer. Um, they have not addressed patient safety and they are not addressing the people who are damaged by the vaccines, you know, who, who are suffering today. Um, I mean, I can make a link between what Debbie uh, talked about uh, a few weeks ago when she was talking about the Health Select uh, Committee Report 4 back to 2004-5, um, which was looking at the influence of the pharmaceutical industry and the MHRA in particular. And in their um, government guidance on that, they said the government agrees that the regulatory system of the MHRA should be as open and transparent as possible and the public should have access access to information on individual application and the data supporting authorisation. So the government was calling out for the MH MHRA to be transparent. Yes. Don't know what happened to that. <laughs> well, no. If we just bring up another slide on screen, um, we've obviously got the lovely June Rain there speaking in the background. Um, but what, what, what was being talked about, new products reaching patients with more uncertainties. Think about what that means. New products reaching patients with more uncertainties, more knowledge gaps, need the bedrock of safety systems could quickly and effectively, and sorry, quickly, Oh, quickly and rapidly identify emerging risks. So it's admitted that these products are coming through. There's uncertainty about them. There's gaps in the knowledge and that they need to be doing more to uh, address the risks, which clearly they're not. And um, we've got an, another slide here, which is just highlighting that 60 million lives on the data set. And of course, this is the big thing about MHRA is that they are openly saying that they are looking forward to their role as a global regulator. So they're not, in the first instance, interested in protecting 
um, people in UK from damaging pharmaceutical products. They are interested in working with the pharmaceutical industry in order to have a, a global enforcement um, uh, ability. Mm. I, I don't know whether you'd like to comment on that role, Cheryl, but I find it amazing. Yeah, and I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to get everybody's details, uh, everybody's data, um, and then they're trying to analyse who's going to have a problem with a, yes. a, a manufactured product. Um, instead of in the past, they did clinical trials, they found out who was contraindicated to take it and they didn't let them have it. Now we're going to try and uh, keep everybody taking something by tweaking doses and what have you, identified by the um, data that's been given. Um, to uh, analyse um, genetics. Yes. Okay, Cheryl, thank you very much for that. And I'm delighted that you're also joining us for extra time so we can, we can have more discussion on this in due course. I'll just very quickly finish this. Uh, well, hold on, because I think Debbie uh, has changed computers. So maybe, can we hear you oh again, Debbie? No. I don't know. Can you hear me? Can you see yes, me? We've yes, had we can. power blackouts. We've had internet blackouts. You can. Um, thank you for, to Cheryl for standing in. And can I just say that YouTube, only five people had seen it when, you know, you have to go really bury down at the bottom of YouTube. Please can everyone share that YouTube because June Rain is making, as Cheryl's must have said, although I didn't hear some remarkable revelations. So, um, but we'll talk about it more in extra if I'm still here. Um, but onto the NHS quickly. COVID is still very much uh, part of the agenda. Please don't think that it's gone away because it hasn't. So they're rolling out the new spring boosters now for everyone over age 75, those that are immunosuppressed, and even uh, they're calling them vulnerable adults. So these are the spring boosters that are rolling on ahead. But I'm glad to see that the Express is still highlighting vaccine injuries. But they're highlighting vaccine injuries also for another reason. And that's because people with vaccine injuries have only got three years to make a, a claim. Many of the um, uh, those that are injured are running out of time to claim. Many of them were injected a couple of a uh, couple of years ago, so they've only got maybe six months or up to a year to claim. But the Express are highlighting that, so I'm I'm glad to see that the Express are doing it. But also very important, and this is like super important, everybody. The WHO have now revised their COVID vaccine guidance. So now they are recommending that healthy children and adolescents may not need a shot. So basically they're saying, as we've always known, that children are low priority. They don't need these vaccinations. They don't want them. So please, parents, please bear that in mind. The WHO has revised its guidance. Also, quickly flipping on to something that we've been warning about for a very long time. It was in the NHS long-term plan. And here we are now looking at personal budgets. Now, they're starting to roll these out now. Personal budgets aren't anything new. They've been around for quite a long time, mainly for people with vulnerabilities, but they're very, very complicated. It basically means that you're rationed. You get given a, a, a specific budget for your care package in inverted commas, but then you have to keep, you almost have to become an accountant. You have to keep receipts. You have to justify what you've spent on. And if we're all going to get personal budgets rolled out, how many GP appointments will that mean a year? 
how many um, operations if we need them? What kind of level of care will we get? So personal budgets are going to be a, a thing for the future. So watch this space. And then anybody, please, that's coming down to the... <laughs> well, there we are. She's going to say anybody who's coming down to the southwest, uh, you're being warned of NHS pressures from Easter. So the story about the pressure on the NHS, the collapsing NHS is continuing. We'll leave it there. Debbie, hopefully we'll get you back in extra time and we can have a sensible conversation on uh, high technology in 2023. Yes, uh, third world country we're turning into. But anyway, uh, right, let's uh, go to Finland. Uh, well, go to Belgium, actually, and, and NATO headquarters. And the BBC was extremely excited about the fact that it was such a sunny day uh, and the gleaming building, the gleaming NATO headquarters was uh, auguring in uh, Finland's new membership to NATO. So they joined NATO yesterday uh, and uh, they raised the flag and played the national anthem. It was fantastic stuff. Um, so we have a little bit of video here uh, of uh, the Finnish foreign minister handing the various paperwork over to Antony Blinken. Let's have a look. Finland's instrument of accession to the North Atlantic Treaty. Please, Secretary Blinken. Thank you very much. Well, with receipt uh, of this uh, instrument of accession, uh, we can now declare that Finland is the 31st member of the North Atlantic. Thank you, Frank. I'm delighted to receive, delighted to receive this on behalf of Finland. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. And then uh, we welcome Finland to the alliance. So there we go. That was uh, extremely exciting. Finland has joined. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Jan Stoltenberg uh, was busy also <clears throat> uh, looking at, at uh, members from the Indo-Pacific region. So, um, so that's not the correct video you have there, Stephanie. If we have the other Stoltenberg one, that's the one. Brilliant. Let's, uh, let's have a listen to what he had to say, because it's not just Ukraine and Russia that we've got to worry about. We highly value the partnership with uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific partners of, uh, of, of NATO. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Korea, and Japan, and um, uh, uh, in a more dangerous and unpredictable world, it is even more obvious that security is not uh, uh, regional, security is global. What happens in your region, what happens in the Indo-Pacific matters for Europe, and what happens in Europe matters uh, for, for, for you. And I think the war in Ukraine demonstrates this very clearly with its global ramifications. Uh, the fact that we also see that uh, China and Russia are standing closer together, makes it just even more important that we are uh, uh, standing together as partners, NATO allies, and, uh, and you as uh, four highly valued partners. So NATO expansion, not just in Europe, but also into the Southeast well, Asia as well. I, I think it's very clear this is the rules-based international order marching towards a global military system. And of course, uh, anybody who's not in that system will be the enemy. This is where it's going. Yes. Now, water quality, and you might wonder why water quality has got anything to do with Russia or China or NATO, but let's uh, let's just listen to uh, Therese Coffey yesterday, who was uh, talking about how they're going to deal with pollution in water. We all agree Pollution is simply not acceptable. So we will penalise polluters, making it easier for regulators to do that job. We'll get farmers the kit and support they need to manage the slurry and reduce the runoff. And we will tackle every other source of pollution head on, including runoff from our roads, banning those wet wipes that have plastic in them, 
It's great that some retailers have already got the message from previous signals, and we're going to complete the job by delivering the regulation. So uh, she was on Radio 4 this morning explaining how they're going to ban wet wipes. And it just... <laughs> this is bad. Oh, it's it? very bad. It's very bad. Because, of course, the next time those nasty Russians come and try to poison us all with weapons-grade Novichok, what are we going to do about it? Because if you remember in 2018, the advice from Dame Sally Davies, the chief medical officer, was that if you got some Novichok on your clothes or your bag or something, my advice for any individual, wash your clothes and wipe down any personal items, shoes and bags with cleansing or baby wipes, before disposing of them in the usual way. So if they get rid of their wet wipes, we're in trouble. But anyway, the, uh, the question that, or the issue that she didn't raise, which I'm going to raise now, is the issue of face masks. Uh, because, of course, uh, plastics in baby wipes and microplastics being generated by washing machines is a very bad thing, except uh, when it comes to pandemic face masks. Uh, which Natural History Museum... Which, are, which are everywhere. They're I mean, absolutely You can everywhere. still see them everywhere. Yes. Uh, uh, in, in urban areas and in the countryside. We're awash. Disgraceful pollution. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so... Right. Well, if that's not bad enough, I'm afraid we've got to give a health warning to our viewers now because I am going to bring Tony Blair on screen. And um, This is a little story that's been happening in the background and uh, we, we haven't really paid much attention to it until today, but this is the London Insider. Tony Blair told to disappear quietly amid World Economic Forum links. The World Economic Forum should separate themselves from Mr. Blair if it wants to maintain some type of credibility, according to Tory MP Lee Anderson. So um, the political, we're going to call it the political rumour mill, um, but we were very interested in where we've been hearing this story, where it's come from. Um, the suggestion is that he could be in the running to take over from Klaus Schwab. Uh, I'm sure this will fill most of our viewers with complete horror, but it's fascinating to watch this. Uh, some details on this little story. This is the MP who's quoted there, um, Mr. Ash, uh, the Ashfield MP, and... Um, he is actually working with the Express at the moment, answering questions from the public. So viewers might be interested to know that they can apparently write into the Express to Lee Anderson and get a response, ask an MP. Um, but this is the sort of thing he was saying about Mr. Blair. We're going back to January 2023. I encourage the World Economic Forum to separate themselves from Mr. Blair if it wants to maintain some sort of credibility. Tony Blair was responsible for the state of Britain's economy in 2010 and even admitted his government failed to understand the complexity of the financial sector or foresee that it was on the brink of crisis. So some pretty basic uh, Tory Labour comment there, but uh, it's, it's certainly pointing a finger at Tony Blair. He also dragged us into a pointless war that cost 179 British lives on the battlefield. So this man needs to disappear quietly to a place where he has no influence at all. Well, I think many people would agree with that. If the World Economic Forum wants to have any sort of credibility, they will distance themselves from this out of touch political has-been. Uh, he might be a has-been, but he seems very dangerous. Um, let's... Uh, have a look at this little video clip of Tony Blair talking about unforgivable politics. Albert was talking earlier about the, the, the politics of the, the situation, and I think the sort of unforgivable politics and forgivable <coughs> politics. Um, the, 
the unforgivable politics is turning a public health issue into a political issue. I mean, I remember at the beginning of the, at the onset of COVID, people saying, well, what do you think <coughs> of the politics of COVID? How serious is this disease? And I was like, well, you asked me about the politics of the disease. I mean, it's a disease. I don't, I don't know. You go and ask someone who knows. <laughs> so what's unforgivable is turning things like whether you wear a face mask or not into a political issue. That is unforgivable and stupid. Right. But there's a forgivable politics, which you see also, by the way, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine and energy prices. If you're a politician and you're facing an election and you've got the ability to vaccinate your people, you're going to vaccinate your people first. Right. So how the question really is, how do you how do you create a situation in which that that more forgivable political anxiety is dealt with? by a plan that allows you now to work on what are the elements you're going to need in order for this to be dealt in, with in the future equitably and properly. So um, lying in order to create a war and killing thousands of people, damaging the lives of millions of people, this is not a problem, uh, but make sure you get the uh, vaccination and the COVID-19 policy in. Uh, well, that's one face of Tony Blair. Let's just go back a little bit and have a look at him defending uh, the World Economic Forum. Let me ask you finally, it's our final question, about the point of Davos all these years later. You know very well that Davos is considered the sort of hobnobbing of the elite, the very people who threw so many millions of people around the world into the calamity that they find themselves in now and led to the rise of populism. Let me just play you this little soundbite from uh, a guy who's kind of gone viral right now, Anand Girdadas, who's just written this book, you know, Winner Takes All, The Charade of the Global Elites. Look what he just told me. I think Davos should end. I think it should be canceled this year and, and should, should end going forward. It, it is a family reunion for the people who, in my view, broke the modern world. I mean, you can't argue with that, right? I can. <laughs> Look, it's the easiest line in the world to make, by the way. You know, I tell you what I do when I come to Davos. So later today, I'll be meeting three of my presidents from Africa. I don't think they broke the economic system. I'll be meeting a whole lot of people from multilateral institutions who work in the developing world. I'm here because my institute, which is a not-for-profit institute, works in in some of the poorest parts of the world trying to help them. And, you know, to be fair, the people who come here, they're discussing serious issues. So it's the easiest play in the world. Say, oh, you know, all these people are coming along here, the global elite and so on. And by the way, you know, these arguments about cultural identity and nationalism, in my experience, you've got elites on either side of the argument. So, you know, Davos, it is what it is. It's, it's, it's an opportunity for people to come and network on issues of importance. And, you know, some people, um, you know, may come here who are billionaires from different parts of the world, but other people come because some of the issues that they're discussing here are important. So uh, Tony Blair in that clip, but of course, Keir Starmer also believes the same. Why should we be paying attention to the World Economic Forum and Tony Blair's involvement in it, if indeed that's going to happen? Let's just, oh, beg your pardon, let's just jump back to this. This is June 2020, The Guardian reporting um, uh, Prince Charles, but uh, pandemic is chance to reset the global econ uh, economy. And if we put in a bit of detail there, 
Um, it says that the coronavirus crisis represents an opportunity to reset the global economy and prioritise sustainable development without further damaging the planet. So this is Prince Charles at the World Economic Forum. And I just want to highlight here that he was emphasising that it was the private sector that would be the engine of so-called recovery. So in bed with Schwab, but uh, is the king now loyal to the British nation or the globalists in the World Economic Forum. And I would say pretty strongly it's the latter. Uh, well, indeed, uh, because, uh, well, his son has just decided that uh, one young global leader is going to be given a new job. So let's bring her on screen. Uh, Jacinda Ardern uh, has uh, joined the Earthshot Prize. We're delighted to welcome Jacinda Ardern uh, to the Earthshot Prize Board of Trustees. Her lifelong commitment to sustainable development and climate Action aligned powerfully with our ambition to protect and restore our planet by 2030. We're honoured uh, that she joins us in this new role. And of course, last year, at the end of last year, uh, she did give uh, a speech at the Earthshot Prize. Uh, if anybody can tolerate it, it's available on YouTube. Uh, I don't recommend it. Do you think she would be on about 30,000 30, a year? Mike? I think, I think uh, you even got enough zeros on that, perhaps. <laughs> Okay, well, it's a clown world, but it's a serious one. We'll end with a little meme, which I think uh, Debbie came up with. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, we've got a little uh, Easter duckling. Why did the Easter bunny fire the duck? He kept quacking all the eggs, which is a bit, um, yes, okay. And then we've got our old friend Joe, <laughs> creepy Joe Biden, and uh, we've got Easter eggs in the background, but he's saying Merry Christmas, everybody. Yes. So uh, the caption there from Debbie is one already locked up, one needs locking up. I think we better leave it there. We're going to say a very big thank you. Uh, well, David, uh, David will be with us shortly in extra time, but David Scott and Debbie and our two guests, um, Cheryl and Sandy, who will also be coming into extra time. So if you're a signed up member with the UK column, join us for extra time. But I think we're going to have a very, very interesting discussion. Lastly, uh, a big thank you. A um, few couple of days ago, we showed flowers that have been sent through to UK Column. Uh, that was truly lovely. What we've also received um, Devon Heaven, which has come all the way. I have to put my glasses on here. It's come all the way really from down under. So Julia and Christian, thank you very much for sending us a very delicious. Do we admit what it is, Mike? Oh, cream. Cream teas. <laughs> Scones. Scones. Uh, jam and cream for a traditional Devon clotted cream. The arguments tea. in the UK columns uh, <laughs> office this morning about whether the cream or the jam goes on first, of course. Which we're not going to get involved in. No, we'll keep that for extra too. Just a quick reminder, no news on Friday or Monday, but we will be playing out uh, some uh, videos that you haven't seen before in the normal live stream slots, so do watch those. Okay, join us in a few minutes' time for UK Column Extra. Thank you. Bye-bye.